Hi everyone, and um, thank you for joining us for episode 17 of Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today's case is one that has stuck with me since I was probably about 13 years old. Today we'll be talking about the murder of Julie Hogg. When I was a teenager, I read a book called For the Love of Julie. Uh, this book was written by Anne Ming, who is Julie's mother. It was the first sort of memoir style book I'd ever read and is actually the book that made me want to become a lawyer, um, mainly because I thought the law was this amazing creative thing, but turns out I was wrong and it's totally boring. <laughs> but it still stands that this story has always, always stuck with me. Most of the information for this episode has come from that book, For the Love of Julie, and I'll link it below. I'd really suggest giving it a read if you have time. It gives amazing insight into the case and the family and the sheer strength and force of Anne Ming, Julie's mother. So this story starts in 1965, when Anne married Charlie Ming and they had their first child together, a little boy who they named Gary. Anne was only 19 years old when she had Gary, although her husband Charlie was 20 years her senior. In 1967, two years later, their daughter Julie was born. Two years after that, their third child Angela was born. The family of five lived in a bungalow in Acklam, which is a small village in North Yorkshire here in England. Unfortunately, not long after they moved into their bungalow, Anne's mother had a stroke and it became clear that she would not be able to look after herself anymore, so the family packed up their lives and moved to Billingham, which is in Middlesbrough. Anne Ming says that this decision to move to Billingham had changed their lives forever. She says her daughter Julie would still be alive today if they'd stayed in Acklam and just moved her mum in with them. Anne Ming describes her daughter Julie as being a mixture of introvert and extrovert, she said that when Julie was a child, she was shy but could be very feisty in arguments if she thought she was right and she didn't let anyone walk over her. As Julie grew up, she started to look more oriental. Her dad, Charlie, was from China and Julie had inherited his dark hair that stood out against her paler skin. When Julie was 16 years old, she met a local Billingham boy called Andrew Hogg. In 1985, when Julie was around 18 years old, she married Andrew and the couple moved out of the Ming's family home and into a little council house of their own. A year later, Julie fell pregnant with a little boy and when he was born, the couple named him Kevin. Julie was described as being a wonderful mother to her son and having Kevin brought Julie out of her shell a bit more. Anne says that because of this and because the couple had been so young when they had gotten married, their marriage didn't last. Andrew wanted to go out and have fun with his friends and play snooker and football, whilst Julie stayed in and looked after their son, Kevin. This would upset Julie and Anne said that it made Julie start fights with Andrew over silly things. In 1989, Andrew was offered a job in London. The couple decided that maybe he should go for it and that the separation might do them some good. Shortly after Andrew's move to London, both he and Julie realised they were happier apart and so they decided that they should separate. On Thursday the 16th of November, 1989, about a month after Andrew had moved to London, Julie was due in court to apply for a legal separation. So is a legal separation the same as a divorce or...? Um, it's very similar to a divorce really, except confusingly you're still like legally married. So uh, if I can explain it, like separation is where you're living apart and then legal separation is where the law kind of acknowledges that you're apart but technically you're still married and then a divorce is like a complete dissolution of a marriage so I don't really think it's very common these days but I think people used to do it maybe for like religious reasons or maybe to like keep the family together or whatever okay um so around this time in November 1989 Julie was working as a pizza delivery girl at their local takeaway shop although she was no longer living with her parents they still saw each other almost every single day 
They didn't live far away from each other at all, just like a matter of minutes, really. On the day before the court hearing, so this is the 15th of November, Anne went round to Julie's to pick up her grandson Kevin to look after him whilst Julie was at work. Because Julie was working a late shift, they agreed that Kevin should stay over at his grandmother's house and that in the morning, Anne would swing by Julie's to pick her up and take her to the court hearing. Anne asked if Julie would stay at hers, but Julie said she'd be back really late and just wanted to sleep in her own bed. She asked her mum to phone her at 7.30am the next day to wake her up, as they needed to be at the courthouse for 10am. Anne said that she would be sure to call Julie the next morning to make sure she was awake in time. As Anne arrived back home with Kevin underarm, her phone started ringing. She answered it, and it was Julie again. Anne smiled as Julie asked, You won't forget to ring me early in the morning, will you? Anne said that Julie was always like this, a real worrier. Anne smiled and told her to stop worrying and that of course she'd remember to wake her. Unfortunately, this was the last time Anne ever spoke to her daughter Julie. The next day, November 16th, Anne woke up Kevin and gave him his breakfast and then, dead on 7.30, as promised, she rang Julie's phone. Julie didn't answer so Anne kept trying. Thinking that her daughter must have overslept, she put Kevin in the car and the pair drove over to Julie's house. Anne didn't have a key so she started knocking loudly on Julie's door. There was no sound from inside the house so she started shouting through the letterbox to try and wake Julie up. She walked over to a phone box and dialed Julie's number. The phone rang and rang but nobody picked up. Presumably because of all the noise Anne had been making, some of the neighbours came outside. Anne went up to them and asked them if they'd seen Julie. One neighbour said that he hadn't seen her and that he can't even remember her coming home that night. He said usually when she was dropped home from work he would hear a car at about 1.30 in the morning, but that night he said he'd heard nothing. Anne was exasperated. She wanted to ask the guys who owned the pizza shop if Julie had been dropped home by one of them, as she usually would have been, but she didn't have a number for them and the actual shop wouldn't be open for hours. Anne rung her son Gary and he quickly made his way over to Julie's house. Gary, understanding the severity of the situation, knew he had to get inside as quickly as possible. He didn't have a key either, so he went round the back and smashed a glass panel in the back door and climbed through the broken window. He said to Anne that he'd go in, find the spare keys and then open the door for Anne and Kevin. Kevin obviously was completely confused as to where his mum was and why everyone was panicking, as he was only three years old. Inside the house, Gary couldn't find any keys, so he opened the lounge window and told Anne that he was just going to go upstairs and see if Julie was there. Julie's bed was freshly made, everywhere was completely tidy, the kitchen had been cleared away and there was no sign of Julie anywhere. This information stopped Anne in her tracks. Julie was a very untidy person. Anne said that Julie never made her bed, she had never seen the point in it if you were just going to get back into it that night. She said there were always dishes drying in the rack in the kitchen and that she never put her crockery away once it was dry. She'd just simply pull it out of the rack and reuse it. The house had not been spick and span the evening before when Anne had popped over to pick up Kevin, so she couldn't understand why it was so pristine now. Whilst Kevin pleaded with Anne to tell him where his mummy was, Gary was on the phone to the police to find out if there had been any accidents the night before that Julie might have been involved in. The officer said that there had been no incidents the night before and that it was too soon to report Julie missing. He told them to make sure the house was locked up and safe and then just go home and wait for Julie to come back from wherever she had gone. Refusing to just sit back and rest on her laurels, Anne dropped Kevin off at Angela's house, so Angela is Julie's sister and Anne's other daughter, and then Anne went down to the pizza shop to see if anyone was in yet. 
She saw the pizza guys and she told them that Julie had disappeared and she demanded to know which one of them had dropped her daughter home the night before. They refused to answer and so Anne went to Charlie's work and told him everything that was going on. Charlie went straight to the pizza shop with Gary and the pair threatened the workers to tell them where Julie was. The police actually came and arrested Charlie and Gary for this and put them in a cell overnight. Of course, this added to Anne's panic and worry as now she felt like she'd lost her two children and her husband. Supposedly, the pizza workers had just been worried and confused by what had been going on and they were worried they were going to get into some kind of trouble. But when they realised that they weren't, one of them admitted that they had dropped Julie home at about 1.30 in the morning and they saw her put her key in the door before he'd driven off. Unfortunately, the police's view was that Julie had still not been missing long enough for it to raise a concern and they basically just told Anne that she'd probably run off to London to see Andrew. Anne rang Andrew to find out if he'd heard from Julie. Maybe she had just run away, perhaps the impending realisation that her court hearing was the next day was too much for her and she'd changed her mind. Unfortunately, Andrew had not heard from Julie at all and had no idea she'd gone missing. On the Saturday, three days after Julie had gone missing, Police officers went to the Ming family home to take the family statement. The police kept saying to them that Julie was a classic example of someone who would just take off. They said she had marriage problems, she was due to go to court, she probably came home to a cold, dark, empty house and wanted a fresh start. They said that she probably just walked down to the A19 and hitched a ride to London. For your reference, Billingham to London is about a four and a half hour drive and they're suggesting that Julie hitched this ride at 1.30 in the morning just on a whim after working her shift at the pizza place. And also, at this point, obviously, Andrew lives there, but she's got no real motive to go to London. Do you know what I mean? It's not the sort of place of dreams here. I think if she wanted a fresh start, surely any northern city would be okay. Yeah, definitely, completely. And if you were going to do that, I just can't imagine that a young mother of a very young boy would just up and do that in the middle of the night like regardless but yeah I totally agree they were kind of painting London as this like amazing city where everyone goes to chase their dreams which is ridiculous because that's just not who Julie was as a person at all yeah and I don't really think it's a thing either <laughs> like it would have just been a very overwhelming and scary expensive place to be particularly yeah. when you've left a young child and it's the middle of the night and you're quite a vulnerable woman on your own yeah, exactly. And also, like, that she just walked down to the A19 and just got in a car. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, mm. yeah, ridiculous. So, yeah, the police weren't taking Charlie or Anne seriously at all. They just thought that they were hysterical parents. The next day, the lady who lived next door to Julie, her name was Kath, told Anne that her son's friend who worked in the police had told them that there had been an anonymous tip-off from a lady who said that she had seen a drunk woman being thrown into a car by three men behind the pizza shop in the middle of the night that Julie disappeared. Anne frantically rang around the police station to get more information, but both Anne and Charlie were shut down by everyone because the information was supposed to have been confidential and the caller was anonymous. Unfortunately, this lead dried up. The lady who called in never came forward or rang back. At this point, Anne felt really angry and upset with the police. They shouldn't have been gossiping with the general public about leads in cases that weren't actually there, especially when they had no intention of investigating Julie's disappearance. It just really got on her hopes up for nothing. On Monday the 20th of November, after Anne had spent her entire Sunday at the police station pestering them to go over to Julie's house to search for evidence, five forensic officers went to Julie's home. 
The team spent three days combing the house for DNA and other evidence. An Ming asked one of the officers if they'd managed to find anything yet. The officer replied curtly, saying, there's no dead bodies in here if that's what you mean. That sentence left Anne feeling like she'd been punched in the gut. After three full days of scouring the home, the forensic team came up with nothing. They said to Anne and Charlie that they couldn't be certain that something untoward hadn't happened to Judy somewhere in the country, but that they guaranteed that nothing had happened to her inside her home. Charlie Ming asked if they'd checked the loft. The police retorted that they were professional police officers, not 13-year-old school kids. The police said they'd put up an alarm in Julie's house just in case she came home or someone tried to break in because Julie's keys had still not been found. This alarm would be silent, so whoever broke in wouldn't know it was there, but it would alert the police station that someone had entered the property. The very next morning, Anne received a phone call saying that someone had broken into the house that night. They said someone had broken in through the downstairs window, but when Charlie and Anne went to Julie's house, there was no sign of forced entry. Whoever had entered the house, however, had taken the videotape from the security camera. This break-in led to nothing. The police claimed the alarm hadn't rung at the police station and so they hadn't gone to investigate it when it happened. The weeks that followed were long and painful. Kevin kept asking where his mummy was and nobody had any answers for him. The family put out an appeal in the local newspaper and went on Tyne Teens Television, their local channel, to put out a video appeal as well. Anne asked the police if they'd put out a national appeal since the police were so certain that Julie was in London However, the officers said no, they didn't see the point in doing that and they'd just keep it local. No progress was made for months. In December, Anne's birthday came and went and she was certain that if Julie was alive out there somewhere she would have called on that day. Anne said that she spent her entire day next to the phone, but Julie never called. By the end of January, almost three months since Julie disappeared, the police said there was no more they could do other than sit and wait and so they gave Andrew the keys to the new locks on Julie's house. Andrew had decided to move back into the house with Kevin to try and maintain some normality for the little boy. The first thing Andrew did when he got into the home was turn the heating on. The house had laid dormant for three months through the winter and so it was freezing cold. A few hours after being in the house, Anne received a call from Andrew saying that there was a weird smell coming from the bathroom. Anne told him to put some bleach down the toilet. She said the smell was just stale water that had been sitting there for months. The next day, Anne popped over to the house to pick up Kevin to take him to playgroup. Anne walked into the kitchen and asked Andrew if he'd managed to get rid of that smell in the bathroom. Andrew said that he hadn't and that actually it seemed to be getting worse. Anne went to investigate and while she was walking up the stairs, the stench hit her nose. Anne had worked most of her life as a nurse in an operating theatre and she knew exactly what that smell was. She stood in the bathroom overcome with emotion and panic. She checked behind the toilet and the sink but there was nothing there. She wondered if the grouting in the walls were maybe mouldy and she prayed that that was what it was. She leaned over the bath to smell the wall behind it and her knee pushed against the bath panel. In that instance, the smell became overpowering. Anne dropped to her knees and pulled at the bath panel. She peered into the gap she'd been able to make and her whole world fell apart. Laying under the bath was a body wrapped in a blanket. What the fuck? I know. Anne screamed hysterically and Andrew phoned the police. Anne ran out of the house screaming, she's under the bath. Kath, from next door, came outside and told her that she must be wrong. The police had searched the house for days. Julie couldn't have been in there. The inspector, who had promised her that there was, quote, no dead bodies in the house 
arrived at the property and Anne, completely overcome with emotion, charged at him and punched him square in the face. Andrew was immediately taken to the police station for questioning. At this point, I think we just really need to consider what Anne must have been going through. I cannot even slightly imagine what it must feel like to discover your daughter's decomposing body in a house you were absolutely certain that she wasn't in. 29 different police officers had been in and out of that house and not one of them had found Julie's body. Anne had to be given sedative injections from the doctors just to calm her down, but she said that it didn't work. She couldn't stop replaying the scene in her head and she could not get the smell out of her nose. God, that is awful. Just for her biggest fear to be realised and not only be realised, but her to be the one that finds the body herself. Mm. And, oh God, you it's awful. It's, it is awful. So after 24 hours of straight interrogation... Andrew was released from police custody. I don't understand why he was even taken into police custody. Probably because they always look to the partner first. Right, okay. Um, So Anne picked him up and he sobbed all the way home. The police had told him that Anne was in the next room and had told them that he'd rung Anne to come over to the house to remove the panel because he thought there was something behind it. Anne was shocked as that was a complete lie. This in itself is actually completely illegal in England and Wales, by the way. Like, you can't lie to someone you're interrogating to coerce a confession. Um, but I mean, I guess we can just add it to the list of police fuck-ups in this case. Yeah, absolutely. That's so unethical because yeah. even if someone does confess, I mean, you just have no way of knowing if they confess for the right reasons. And it's just completely stupid from the police because they put the whole case in jeopardy by using tactics like that. Mm-hmm, completely. Um, so regardless of this, Andrew kind of like stuck to his guns and didn't admit anything that they were saying. And he was cleared as a suspect. He also had a solid alibi as he'd been in London the entire time throughout Julie's whole disappearance. Do I maybe find it a bit weird that he did never come back throughout her disappearance? I mean, I know they were legally separated, but was this the first time in which he came home to tend to his child? No, like he'd been back and forth like a little bit, but I mean, he largely right. was in, in London like the, the whole time, really, because he was working there. Okay. So two weeks later, on the 14th of February, 1990, the police arrested and charged a local man named Billy Dunlop with the murder of Julie Hogg. He had been a loose acquaintance of Julie's and Anne remembers having met him at Julie's house once before. Eerily, Billy was best mates with Mark, who was the son of Kath, the lady who lived next door to Julie, Billy had actually been sitting in the kitchen of the house next door when Anne had gone over that fateful morning asking the neighbours if any of them had seen Julie. Oh my God. The police first looked to Billy as he had a reputation for being violent and had a string of very violent assaults going back 15 years to when he was just a kid. The police revealed that they'd learned that on the night that Julie disappeared, Billy had been on a stag night with some friends getting absolutely slaughtered. The group of boys hired a stripper for the stag night and Billy, showing off, dropped his trousers and started trying to force himself onto the girl in front of everyone. The doorman to the club kicked him out after this and Billy was so enraged that he hit his head against the door that caused a large cut. He also beat a man half to death outside the club. When he realised that he was covered in blood, he went to the local hospital to get stitches and then he was back out on the streets at 1.30 in the morning. Originally, when Julie's case had just been a missing persons inquiry, Don, a man that Billy had been staying with, had alibied Billy and said that he'd come home at 2am that night. However, now that this was a murder investigation, it seemed that Don didn't want to lie for him anymore and he told the police that actually Billy had not gone home that night at all. 
The police took out a search warrant for Don's house, as this was where Billy had been staying, and under the floorboards they found Julie's house keys and a Billingham rugby top. Fibres on that top matched fibres on the blanket that Julie had been wrapped up in, and there was also semen and hairs on the blanket that was a match for Billy Dunlop's DNA. Oh, Christ. It was thought that Billy had kept Julie's house keys to go back into the house at a later date and dispose of her body. So that's what the alarm was that went off months ago, but there was no sign of a break-in. Yes, Sherlock, it actually was. Well done. That comes out of the trial later. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, and I think one thing just that I just want to focus on here, not that anyone would do this, but it's really striking, isn't it, that you said his friend Don gave him an alibi and you wonder if months ago he hadn't done that. The case wouldn't work out differently as such, but it could have saved Julie's poor mum from being the person to find the body. Yeah, 100%. Billy was obviously in their kind of like eye line, do you know what I mean? Like they obviously considered him to be a really like brute of a man. So yeah, I definitely think if Don had not alibied him, they would have looked into it further. Yeah, and he probably thought nothing of it at the time, but mm-hmm. actually it just goes to show in cases like this what a knock-on effect little decisions that people make have. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Billy Dunlop denied any involvement in Julie's death and refused to plead guilty, and so the family were set to endure even more heartache as they went to trial in May 1991, a year and a half after Julie's murder. A lot more information about the police failings came out at this trial. The officer, who had been told to search the loft, admitted that all he'd done was stand on the steps of the ladder and just had poked his head into the loft and looked around. Another officer said that he'd taken a search dog into the house and that the dog had gone crazy as he was walking up the stairs and had even pulled the officer into the bathroom. For whatever reason, the officer didn't bother searching the bathroom for the root of what was causing the dog's agitation. Billy claimed that he'd gotten so drunk at the stag do that he couldn't remember at all what he'd been doing after he'd left the club. However, the prosecution brought in the hospital nurse who had stitched his eye and he confirmed that Billy wasn't out of control at all and that he suspected that he definitely would remember perfectly well what he'd been doing after he'd left the hospital. He backed this up by saying that he would never have given Billy any anaesthetic if he'd been blind drunk. During the trial, the pathologist stated that he could not determine a cause of death for Julie because her body had been so badly decomposed. He said it was clear that she had no broken bones and had not endured any form of violent beating up. However, he said that due to the presence of a violent sexual injury, it was clear that the cause of death had not been due to natural causes. He concluded that it was likely that she died from some sort of manual strangulation or other form of asphyxia. There was a lot of media attention surrounding Julie's death and the trial. Billy's dad even went on TV to talk about his son. In an interview, Billy Dunlop's father said that there was no way Billy killed Julie because strangling someone wasn't Billy's style. What? He said that if his son was going to kill someone, he'd likely do it by, quote, battering them to death. Why would you even go on and say that? I don't know whether he really thinks he's helping but either way that's a fairly damning character reference and also it's just horrifically insensitive to her family Mm, it is completely insensitive Um, and to be honest billy's defense was almost as bad as his dad's um, because he had no explanation for why his dna and semen was found on the blanket wrapped around julie he had no reason for why her keys were under his floorboards and he had no account of where he'd been those hours after he'd left the hospital this case obviously seemed like a slam dunk 
He just sounds like an idiot, though. I mean, he must have been able to muster up, even if it was just the typical, we had consensual sex and then I never saw her again. But mm-hmm. just to say he had no clue about any of it is, well, just speaks volumes about what, I don't know, either he's just completely deluded um, or he's just an idiot. Yeah, maybe a bit of both. I totally agree with you. I don't understand. Also, I don't understand why his like lawyer wasn't coming up with something better. Yeah, absolutely. However, obviously, as you'll go on to see, it really didn't matter. The jury deliberated for a whole day and they kept sending out people to ask questions to the judge, although reportedly none of these questions seemed to bear any relevance to the trial. Eventually, the court reconvened, but horrifyingly, the jury had not been able to come to a verdict, not even on a majority basis. And because of this, the jury were discharged from their duties and the judge ordered a retrial. I'm so... I feel like I must have missed something really key here. I don't understand how they can possibly be failing to come to a conclusion. I mean, there's some quite strong DNA evidence. He's got a track record as long as my arm. What was it that they were finding so hard to agree on? Do you know what? Like, I just don't know. And all I can say is, I just don't feel like this jury really understood the severity of what this case was actually about. Um, or what their kind of duty was as jury members, because I think I read, I can't remember if it was in this one or if it was in the retrial, but when the judge asked, obviously in a jury, I say obviously, sorry, probably it might not be obvious to some people, but you have to appoint a foreman and the foreman does all the speaking on behalf of the jury members. And the judge asked when they all reconvened, like, oh, um, can the foreman please stand? And the jury members all were looking around like, oh, like, what's that? And it kind of goes back to what I just like said a minute ago, like they were asking loads of questions to the judge, but one of the um, lawyers said that they bared no relevance at all to the trial. Um, it was all just like really, really kind of like trivial things. Um, the only thing that I can think of possibly, and you know, obviously the jury haven't said what their reasons were for not coming to a decision, but I think what the solicitors basically and the barristers thought about afterwards was that It's just because they didn't have a cause of death. And that was obviously because of the police failings, because her body wasn't found for months and it was so badly decomposed. And obviously, if it hadn't been so badly decomposed, they would have had a cause of death. And so I think that really, it just came down to that, was that they didn't know how she died. Um, But that's just ridiculous because it's quite clear that she didn't just kill herself and then pop herself under the bath, isn't it? Like, it's quite clear that she was murdered. And all the evidence, like you said, points to Billy. Exactly. And I think, of course, it might make it easier if you've got a very clear motive and a clear cause of death. But the reality is is that she is dead and someone has killed her. And Mm. so quite what happened in between that, if you've got very strong evidence, I don't really think is the take home point. And it's also not what their job is. It's not to deliberate how she died. It's to deliberate who was involved on that. And so, yeah, I just find it very strange that they didn't manage to agree. And actually possibly more strange that they only spent a day deliberating because it's completely understandable that 12, 13 people might struggle to come to an agreement over a complicated and quite gruelling case. Mm. But to only spend a day trying to do that. I mean, some juries deliberate for weeks. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't understand it either. And I don't understand why the judge didn't just force them back into a room to come to a decision because there are trials where that happens. Um, But it might just have been that they were so far removed from ever coming to uh, either a majority, like, you know, not even a unanimous verdict, but a majority verdict. I don't know. I don't know what the numbers were and, you know, who was swaying which way, but it. I agree with you. It seems absolutely ridiculous and so, so heartbreaking for her family. 
yeah, to have to repeat the whole process. I almost wonder if the kind of litany of police failings might have confused the whole thing and sidetracked away from the murder itself and what they were really there to make a judgment on. Actually, that's a really interesting point. That's a really interesting point because that's so true. I guess if you're a jury member and you're sat there and you hear that 29 different police officers went in and out of the house and um, that, you know, five specialist forensic guys were in there for three straight days and they didn't find her body, that must, yeah, I guess as a jury member, that probably is confusing and you would wonder, well, was there something else going on? Um, Maybe someone came back and put her body there or whatever. I, I know if I was a jury member, I would definitely think, you know, this seems like a lot of failings from the police, you know, like it seems like a lot of fuck ups from them. Maybe it was something else that happened. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was wondering. So the retrial didn't take place for another long and torturous six months. At the retrial, there was no new evidence and the long, painful statements and evidence of Billy's guilt was laid out again to the court. The jury deliberated for one day and when they came back, they were asked if they could reach a unanimous verdict. They said that they could not. The judge asked if they could reach a majority verdict and horrifyingly, they once again replied that they could not. What? Therefore, the judge had no choice but to acquit Billy Dunlop for the murder of Julie Hogg and he was allowed to walk free. That is awful. And as you can imagine, Anne and Charlie Ming's lives fell apart. Anne suffered from PTSD over the discovery of Julie's body and Charlie suffered from severe depression, so much so that he had to stay in a psychiatric ward for a while. Their pain was made even worse when they heard rumours that Billy Dunlop was out and about in Billingham, bragging that he'd gotten away with the perfect murder. Billy was literally telling anyone that he could that he had killed Julie and that he'd gotten away with it. Unfortunately, because of the archaic law of double jeopardy, there was nothing the family could do. Double jeopardy means that once you've been acquitted formally by a judge for a crime, you cannot be tried again for that same crime. Anne Ming was left with only two options hope that Billy Dunlop did something else to be committed to life behind bars or campaign to change a law that had been around for over 800 years. Refusing to be beaten, Anne Ming decided to do the latter. During this time, Billy was put in jail for a few short months after his girlfriend and the mother of his two boys came forward and said that Billy had threatened to kill her. After his release from jail, Billy got a new girlfriend and within a few months he was back behind bars for stabbing his new girlfriend and puncturing her lung and attacking a man so violently that he broke several of the bones in his face. You are joking. How can no one have convicted this monster? I know. Well, for this crime he was actually sentenced to seven years behind bars and in prison he befriended a lady officer and she managed to secretly record Billy confessing openly to Julie's murder. They used this taped recording to get Billy to write a signed confession for what he had done to Julie, as he was now facing a charge of perjury for lying under oath during his trial. In his statement, Billy wrote that he had come back from the hospital that night and had gone to his mate Mark's house. He said he noticed that the lights were still on at Julie's place, because she had just gotten in from work, and he said that he knocked on the door and she let him in for a cup of tea. He said that Julie started laughing at him and giggling about the cut on his eye. Billy said that he just lost it and became so angry that she was mocking him that he just stood up and strangled her there and then in the kitchen. He refused to mention what happened to Julie's vagina that had caused such a large and noticeable injury and he refused to explain how his semen had got on the blanket that she'd been wrapped up in. Oh. 
He said he tried to put Julie's body in the loft, but that it was too heavy to carry her up the ladder and lift her in. So he panicked and unscrewed the bath panel and put her under there, planning to come back later to move her. And that's what you said earlier, Sal, about coming back in. That's why he came back in to see if her body was still there after the police had been in. Oh, right, okay. At the court hearing for the perjury charge, Billy brazenly admitted to everything I just said in a court of law. Despite this, he could still not be convicted of Julie's murder. He was absolutely certain that he would be protected forever by the double jeopardy law. Oh, right. So that's why he was so fine confessing, because he Mm -hmm. knew that even if he did confess, he couldn't be charged. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. I thought he was just still an idiot. Well, I mean, he's also an idiot, but yeah, he was. That's why he was going around telling to telling everyone that he'd got away with the perfect murder because he could openly admit it to anyone. He could, and he did. You know, he stood up in a court of law and actually said that he committed this murder, knowing full well that he could not be convicted of it. Disgusting. However, unbeknownst to him, Anne Ming was fighting every single day to change the law. She went up against MPs, she wrote hundreds of letters to people in positions of power, she was getting her name out there as much as she could. A German television show did a debate on Double Jeopardy and came over to England to get Anne Ming to talk about her story. I think it's important to realise that this law had been in practice for over 800 years. Lots of people were against changing the law, including many lawyers. Surprisingly, Imran Khan, who was the lawyer who worked on the Stephen Lawrence case, spoke out saying that even he didn't think the law should be changed, despite Stephen Lawrence's killers going free due to this archaic law. So I've got two questions here. Mm. In what history did the law come about? Uh, And also, what are the arguments for both sides of the debate? Because, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, sure, you don't want people to be able to relentlessly be tried for the same crime in a sort of potluck they'll get found guilty one day fashion. Um, But also in this case, it does seem really silly that there's no exception for it. So it's hard to imagine why so many people are against it. Mm -hmm. So I think think the issue was for most people was that it would kind of also make police officers lazy. So yes, it would mean that people could get tried again and again and again. But people I think thought kind of one step further than that. I thought that, well, it would mean that police officers would just become sloppy and do like shoddy police work because they'd be kind of less worried about making mistakes and, you know, chain of evidence and all the rest of it. They would be less concerned about protecting all those things if they'd be able to bring back suspects time and time again for retrials. I agree with you. I think there should have been some kind of caveat in place that said, you know, if new evidence comes to light or something like that, that would be... Confession. Yeah, well, completely. Well, yeah, and that would obviously count as new evidence. But yes, like anything, if like one, like, you know, another bit of DNA or something like that, because the problem also with this law is because of it, people don't want to take um, these cases to court before they have like a boatload of evidence just in case, you know, they were acquitted. And then, you know, they couldn't be retried if some new evidence came to light in the future. So yes, I agree with you. It's it's very difficult. It's really, really difficult. Um, But that's kind of why people were advocating for this to not be changed. Although I think personally, I can see more um, sort of arguments for why it should be changed. But yeah, I think it was surprising that Imran Khan was so against it because Stephen Lawrence's killers were like walking free due to this law. It doesn't sound like it needs to be such a black and white argument. Like we've said, it seems like the sort of thing where actually there should be a special permission from the high court to to break it. And also, I think, sure, you don't want to try people again and again, but if I was a juror on a trial where somebody was being tried for the fifth time, I would probably be going in with a mind of thinking, okay, they're probably not guilty. So I think mm. you have to give people the 
benefit of the doubt in these cases um, that actually if you do overturn this law it will be used for the right reasons yeah no I definitely agree and you know Anne Ming didn't let this stop her she rallied so hard and she eventually got in with Jack Straw the home secretary at the time in 1997 he helped Anne reach out to judges and eventually the law commission held a meeting regarding changing the law on double jeopardy the law commission drafted a consultation paper to change the law and crucially have it apply retrospectively for two and a half years, the committee considered this change in law, and then, miraculously, it was passed. Wow. This then went through the Houses of Parliament, and in July 2002, a white paper was released titled Justice for All. So for those of you who don't know, a white paper is basically a document that kind of lays out a new policy, and it demonstrates that the, that the government has intentions to introduce that policy as new legislation. So this was huge. This was such a big move from the government. Um, it was really, really amazing. Um, and the Ming family actually received a copy of the white paper and someone had written on it in big letters on the front, it will apply retrospectively. And I just don't think people might, you know, not realise how crazy that is. Like if new laws are introduced, they are almost never applied retrospectively because obviously it does seem unfair to be convicted of something that wasn't the law at the time that you did whatever you did. Um, so just amazing that they actually applied this retrospectively and I can't do you know when I, I remember the first time I read this and I just could not believe this like Anne's just a mother do you know what I mean like she's literally just a mum she's a mum who like worked as a nurse she had no experience of the law you know like I spent five years learning about the law and I could never do this and I don't think there's any seasoned lawyer in the firm that I work at who could go up against a law as archaic and as ingrained as Double Jeopardy was I just honestly think she's just so amazing yeah it's incredible she's just a very very hurt person who never stopped fighting and we've seen it in some of our other cases of mm -hmm. pe people doing extraordinary things in the wake that follows a real tragedy and i think mm -hmm. this is just another example of someone who's i don't know really made the world a slightly better place even if it's just for themselves but in this mm -hmm. case i really don't think it is i think there'll be other people who stand to benefit from the dedication and the the passion that our Ming's yeah. put into what happened to her daughter. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like there, there were so many other people who she helped. And, you know, like, I won't bore any of you anymore with the legalities that are behind implementing a new law, but it was eventually implemented in April 2006. And it stated that anyone who had been acquitted of a serious criminal offence could be retried, provided that there was new evidence available. This, of course, was not a problem for Anne and her family because Billy had confessed in a written statement and in a court of law to killing Julie. After appearing in front of five law lords, Billy Dunlop's acquittal was quashed and a retrial for the murder of Julie Hogg was ordered. At first, Billy pled not guilty, but at his second appearance in court, he pled guilty. His sentencing hearing was held in October of 2006, 17 years after Julie had been murdered. Wow. You can't imagine the emotion that the family must have been feeling as they walked in the courtroom to hear the words, how do you plead guilty? I know. I know. I think it is incredible. It is incredible. And Billy Dunlop was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum tariff of 17 years before he can apply for parole. Uh, the only unfortunate thing about this was that they took into account the two years he was remanded in custody so this means that he will be eligible for parole next year in 2021 but i mean i think we're all very hopeful that he will stay behind bars for much longer than that as he's quite clearly a nasty piece of work 
yeah, I think it's very easy to see that he represents a threat to society, mm-hmm. particularly because by the time, like you say, 17 years later, this was by no means the only serious crime he'd committed at this point. Mm-hmm. So I'd be very shocked if he did get granted any kind of parole. Mm-hmm. So I've got one more question, which is still playing on my mind a little bit. Yeah. Do we know anything more about... Um, since he's confessed about the timeline of the murder because I don't know why I sort of imagined that um, he'd have been intoxicated and that he'd have tried to sexually assault her and I don't know if I'm just thinking this because um, Mm. there was that anonymous tip that said they saw a woman being bundled into a van Um, but from the sounds of things it sounds more like he killed her first um, and then committed a sexual offence against the body um, so yeah I don't know it just it surprises me that he said that he just lost his cool and strangled her it really wasn't what I pictured having heard about him and him being his nature I don't know do we have any more information on on what really happened so unfortunately no we don't and we also don't know what happened to Julie to sustain that injury to her vagina so I think we can all infer and I think everyone did infer that she was definitely sexually assaulted in some way whether or not that happened after she died or beforehand we don't know because all we have is his confession his written statement and in that he refused to mention anything about any kind of um sexual act or anything he didn't even say how or like address the fact that his semen was found on the blanket so we don't know the timeline He said, obviously, that he went in, she had a laugh at him, and then he just lost it and he strangled her. I think we can probably all imagine that, yes, that might have happened because, you know, he was beating up people left, right and centre and stabbing people for literally zero reason. Yeah, it's clearly got no impulse control. Yeah, completely. He has absolutely no control. But I think, you know, it's very likely that something else did happen and that maybe he was drunk. He was clearly probably quite... Uh, I don't know if sexually aroused is the right phrase, but do you know what I mean? He was clearly in that mindset because he'd been trying to essentially sexually assault that stripper on the um, in the rugby club. So yeah. um, he was fueled with alcohol and God knows what else. And so I don't think it's, you know, beyond the realms of possibility that he did unfortunately do something quite sexually aggressive towards her, but we don't know. And because he pled guilty, obviously nothing new came to light at a trial or anything like that. And his guilty plea was based on his previous confession in which he hadn't said anything about what he actually did. So yeah, I think it is obviously awful and it was awful for her family. Yeah. And I suppose that's really the key thing as well. Either way, she suffered a horrible horrible death at the hands of a very very nasty man and so yeah I suppose you're right actually we don't know and maybe it it doesn't matter so much we know all we need to to make a judgment about Mm -hmm. this situation yeah and the court had all they needed to put him away for life so yeah I hope justice yeah so hopefully that was enough but obviously yeah it's, it's hard for her family but you know maybe it's one of those situations where it's best if you know it doesn't kind of come out but mm. yeah, hopefully, hopefully she didn't go through too much, you know. And how are her parents now? I mean, is her, I can't imagine to say they're better or recovered. This kind of grief sits with you for life, I think. But do we know how they're coping? Yeah, so they actually, so after the first and second trials, they split up and they just separated. Um and obviously both of them were just handling things in very very different ways and then Anne obviously channeled all her energy into changing this law and Charlie really kind of saw it as you know 
you're like this little northern lass and you're not going to be able to do this kind of thing like how do you think you're going to go up against these people and she literally and I'm not exaggerating when I say she spent years writing letters writing her argument going to these like hearings going to meetings you know speaking to whoever she could like she did not let up she was totally relentless and I think you know I think this always happens in situations like this doesn't it like the you know the husband and the wife want to handle things differently and I think Charlie kind of wanted to just kind of forget about it and try and move on whereas Anne's kind of relentless struggle was a constant reminder um so yeah they parted ways but then actually they did get back together and so now they are still together which is obviously so lovely and um yeah I mean I guess it's you know these things happen and the families do come back together and yeah so it's really really nice and her son's obviously Julie's son is completely grown up now like he's an adult and everything um I know that he's faced some battles um in his own life and things like that I definitely think this probably wasn't easy for him um you know like he was three years old at the time like any memory he has of his mum is anything that he's heard in court and that's not good you know that's not nice that's not a nice way to remember his mum by no it's very damaging for any child yeah and yeah and so he's had like a few like uh, I think maybe one or two stints inside prison for kind of white collar crimes so yeah um it's I think it was definitely you know it's, it was awful for the family but they did what they could to overcome it and come through and you know Anne Ming's battle with this archaic law like you said earlier it served to benefit like so many families and victims and because of this, because of what she did and this change in the British legal history, it served as like a catalyst for other countries to change their double jeopardy laws as well. And I think it was in 2011, Scotland changed their laws. And because of this, there's been killers there who've been brought to justice and in loads of other countries as well. So it's just been phenomenal. Do you know what I mean? Like there were so many other families that benefited from this change in law and Anne Ming has helped them and helped so many victims of these miscarriages of justice. Yeah, it's amazing. And was there any internal review into the police's actions in this case? Because to me, there seemed to be a huge amount of police negligence. The searches Mm -hmm. didn't sound up for scratch. Um, Mm -hmm. The complete lack, I mean, as it happens retrospectively, we know now that uh, unfortunately Julie was uh, deceased the whole time. Um, But their reluctance to run a kind of national campaign when frankly they had no information to that effect and she could very well have been alive on the streets or in danger somewhere again that seems very striking to me it, I I don't know I hope at minimum there's been lessons learned but I'm curious as to that whether there was any formal review or proceedings yeah so the police complaints commission definitely looked into this case and they did send and mean like a really really long letter about all their failings and stuff like that and they did admit that they had failings and you know even the police officers apologized especially that police officer who had said to Anne you know there's no dead bodies in here and stuff like that. Like, I think, yes, yes, it was looked into. Did anything change? Not really. Um, although Anne actually herself continued to work with the police and give them training courses in West Yorkshire. Very similar to Ebony Simpson's mum, the case that we did, um, the Australian case that we did. Mm. Um, so she's helping the police now understand how they should react with victims' families and stuff like that. And um, she also helps train family liaison officers as well. So, I mean, no, the Police Complaints Commission didn't really do anything, but Anne Ming is just doing more and more to like help everyone around her, it seems. She's really yeah, amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard because I don't necessarily think there'd be anything they could do apart from, I don't know, maybe penalising the officers involved mm-hmm. who I'm sure 
you'd assume probably already they had to stare their failings in the face in this case. Mm-hmm. There was no um, questioning of wondering what if. It was very clear um, mm-hmm. the errors they'd made. But And I think I'm pleased that someone did acknowledge um, how they've maybe behaved at times to Anming mm-hmm. because in that moment, I don't know, it doesn't make anything better and nothing could be, the past couldn't be changed. But maybe just for her to hear a sorry and an acknowledgement mm-hmm of what had gone wrong, I hope that gave her some small piece in addition to all the other amazing things she went on to do herself. Yeah, I can definitely agree. I think sometimes that's all you want, isn't it? Like, just some like form of acknowledgement. Yeah, exactly. So at the end of uh, the last episode, I did promise you something with a little bit of a happier ending, and I hope that this case has brought you that. Anne Ming's strength and determination has undoubtedly helped so many families and victims, as well as ensuring that her daughter's killer was in prison for the awful crime that he committed. If you want to find out more, once again, I recommend Anne Ming's book called For the Love of Julie. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. You can find us on Facebook and on Instagram at infraction.thepod for images each week that relate to our cases. We'll see you on Wednesday, uh, where we will be looking at another British case and looking into whether a blind woman spent 17 years behind bars for a murder that she might not have committed. So we'll see you guys on Wednesday for that one. Thank you. Bye. Bye.